Welcome to A Voice from the Hills. I'm James Warner, co-founder of Silicon Hills Wealth Management here in Austin, Texas. Our guest on today's podcast is Joelle Bonaparte. She goes by the handle Average Joelle on social media, but I think you'll agree after this podcast that she's anything but. Like many accomplished women in today's society, she juggles the roles of mother, spouse, and executive with the responsibilities to her community, society, and herself. Joelle is an author, brand builder, and the publisher of Our Tiny Rebellions, one of the coolest things to come from the pandemic. Today, we're going to talk fear, expectations, boundaries, taking risk, partnership, and what it takes to feel truly accomplished. So let's get to it. James Warner is the founding partner of Silicon Hills Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by James his co-host, and guest are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Silicon Hills Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Silicon Hills Wealth Management may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. And Joel, thank you for joining us. Just, just to kind of set the stage for everybody, you're a mother of two, you're general counsel for a Fortune 100 company, uh, you're an author, maybe an unrecognized brand builder, and then you've got this awesome little thing called Tiny Rebellions that you started during the pandemic. Did I miss anything? No, I don't think you missed anything. I I wear a lot of hats, and you've uh, you've you've mentioned all of them. So yeah, <laughs> hi. And so, how is it like wearing those hats uh, in the last eighteen months? What's been different? Uh, a lot has been different. Um, there, there is really no, uh, there is no boundary between one and the next. I would say that is probably the, the, uh, the biggest change that we've uh, experienced since the pandemic that changed everything. I mean, I wear many of those hats at the same time every day, and there is no day and there is no night. There is just, you know, awake and asleep, working and not. I mean, but they really all blend together. Uh, every single day. And I wouldn't, you know, honestly, though, I wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, it's been a journey, but I think through it, I have been forced to uh, really look hard at my priorities and find, you know, things that matter most to me and put those at the top of the list and really learn how to juggle them. And when I was prepping for our podcast, I was thinking that, you know, just because of the location that you guys are in, I mean, you were really on the front lines of COVID in the U.S., Mm -hmm. We were, we were. I mean, so just for some backstory here, uh, we took our daughter, our older daughter now, Hazel, who's now six, for her fourth birthday, we promised her a trip to Disney World, uh, which we had scheduled for January 2020. She came down with the flu, or what we think is the flu. I mean, who really knows now? But uh, she came down with the flu uh, the night before we were supposed to leave. Uh, for our trip and we had to cancel it. And it was devastating. I mean, we've all experienced a lot of disappointment over the last few years, but this was like a really big deal. You know, it's four-year-old's first trip to Disney World. So we, I rushed around like a, like a maniac to reschedule it. Uh, and we got it rescheduled for the last week in February slash the first week in March, 2020. And we are watching, you know, on the news, news out of China, then news out of Italy, and the first case in, I guess it was California, then there's cases in New York, and we live in the New York City area, and our trip is is inching closer and closer, and I'm like, nothing is going to prevent us from going on this trip. 
Um, We cannot do this to her again. You know, we had no idea what disappointment really was at that time, um, I think. But we just, we were so adamant that we weren't going to cause our daughter any more disappointment, that we pushed through and we went to Disney World amidst the initial stages of the pandemic in the U.S. And by the time we returned home the second week in March, I mean, like it almost was barely even safe to go to the office anymore. Where it hits home. Yeah, where where it hits home, literally, where it was starting to to really be in our own backyard. I mean, and for us, that was really, um, you know, first weeks, March 2020. And, you know, closed our eyes. And, and, and a day later, we were all at home with our kids and school was closed. And we all thought it was going to be for a couple of weeks. And it wasn't a couple of weeks. And people around us were, were falling ill. I mean, it was it was terrifying. Our friends that live in New York City and and they're tough. I mean, people that are that live in New York City just have a toughness about them. Yeah, and well, I can really I, just that's the first time I've seen a lot of these people just kind of shed that whole toughness and just really be vulnerable and scared. You know, they were just yeah, scared. I, I don't I mean, I don't think there was any way to to keep. I mean, we all we all try, you know, New York tough. That's what they don't say. But it, like people try to keep a brave face. But I think everyone in this region felt like like we were trapped. And were your kids old enough to kind of really know what was going on or did they, did it seem like a giant sleepover for them? What was the, what was the vibe? Yeah. I mean, at the time my kids uh, were four and my younger one had just turned one. So um, they really had no idea what was going on. My four-year-old missed being in school, but she really didn't. um, she, She really couldn't comprehend like what we were doing and why we were here. I mean, she was just kind of, you know, just kind of maturing into the age of realizing that something was amiss. Um, and, and, and that was really hard too. I mean, it's trying to, trying to balance truth and reality with a four five, six year old, you know, wanting them to understand that there's a reason why we're doing these things that seem very strange to you, but she, you know, couldn't really comprehend. I mean, we bumped up against that uh, a bunch of different times during the pandemic. And I think that may have been the most heartbreaking thing for me um, was she really thinks, and she still, she really thinks she understands what's going on, but it's so much more complicated than even the ways that we try and oversimplify and explain it to a young child. Um, you know, she would say things that like, well, why can't I do X, Y, Z? I promise I'll wear my mask, you know, right? because up here that's, you know, most people still wear their masks, you know, a lot more than probably in other areas in, in the country. Um, and she would say that. And I'm like, well, that's not, you know, I, I, I know you think that you're doing everything right, you know, sweetie, but it's not as, it's not as simple as that. Um, and so it's, it's hard to, it's hard to brush up against um, that, that disappointment and to try and explain things to her in terms that she would understand and that are appropriate. So, I mean, it was, it was tough to um, tough to balance truth, um, but also shelter her from, some of the scary stuff that, that we were feeling and experiencing. I mean, we, we, you you have to hide it. We had to hide it. It was, it was tough. Yeah. And so when you, was it when you were pregnant with Hazel that you, uh, that you co-wrote the book, the millennial fix? (laughs) Yes. Yes. The millennial. Be honest with me. How much of that did you write? A hundred percent, 90%. What was the, what was the co-authorship? Oh, you know, 
it's I I won't throw Douglas under the bus here. You know, Doug and I Doug and I work together in a very interesting way. So um, we had this idea for the Millennial Money Fix. Uh, when I I guess when I first got pregnant with Hazel, um, and 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 we kind of Doug and I don't have an off button. We go all the time. Uh, we you know we're always batting ideas back and forth. We debate issues till we fall asleep at night. It's just who we are. So we came up with this idea and we just started working through the thesis of like, well, what could we do? What is, uh, what is the problem for millennials? Like what are, what are the problems that we face and why do we face them? Um, and what, uh, you know, it, are there some constructs we can put together to help uh, them find uh, financial freedom? And so we started just talking through these ideas. I mean, God, over, I guess the course of, I guess over the course of my whole pregnancy and um, we started drafting a couple chapters of the book. We sold the book and the timing worked out pretty well that we spent most of my maternity leave drafting the book. And, you know, he's, he's more of an ideas guy and I'm more of an, well, his ideas are all throughout there, but uh, yeah, you know, I mean, anybody who's read your writing guy. and then read that book goes, Oh, okay. I get it. Yeah, no, he's, you know, he's definitely the numbers guy, the finance guy with, with all the substance, but I'm, I'm the person with the stories and that's how we operate. And that's why we're such a good team. But in, in the book, you talk about the idea of nine to five, especially for millennials being kind of a, an outdated, almost laughable concept. Yeah. Uh, and, and you talk about the, the concept of mastering the art of multitasking and yes. also, and- also being more just being more fluent with technology. So you never truly have an off button. Well, and you know what the interesting thing is too, that book, our book is kind of like a bit of a time capsule, right? Because it was published before the pandemic. So now I think a lot of folks who, who didn't, who, you know, or or upper management, older generations and upper management who were resistant to those changes were kind of like forced into them. Right over the last two years of saying, well, I don't, I may not necessarily trust my team to work from home and to get things done uh, according to whenever they feel like it, but they don't really have a choice. I mean, yeah, they could have just sent a, they could have just sent a note home saying it's, I'm sorry, but you have to be a millennial now. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's no option. Well, I mean, but that, but that was a kind of always my, that was always the school of thought that I subscribe to. And, and I, I'm sure that, you know, which is interesting because I've always kind of had these corporate jobs by day and I've always uh, worked on my passion projects and, and assisted Doug on, you know, with, with his, um, his projects at night. But my whole thing has always been like, it doesn't have to be like this. If someone can act efficiently and they can get their job done, um, they shouldn't be punished for finishing, uh, you know, finishing early or for, or for working at non-traditional times. I mean, they should, people should get to work when they, uh, you know, have the capacity and, and, and at the speed at which they can do it. Um, and, and as long as the work's getting done, you know, what is, what is the concept of FaceTime anyway? Um, you know, I, I think that letting go of that, I mean, we did talk about that in the book. I mean, letting go of that, uh, it, it, it also in a sense supports women. It supports women in their advancement in the workplace because, um, we were always the first to lose when people were looking around at seven or eight o'clock at night at the law firms that I worked at and there were no uh, working mothers sitting there anymore. It wasn't because we were working less hard. It was because we had other obligations outside of the office. I mean, and I, and it could have I, also meant you were already done. Well, right. Well, that was the thing. Like I, <laughs> I would always lament about that. I would say, you know, 
I sit here all day and I, I like pump through my to-do list because I know that I have to leave at 4.30 because that's when pickup, you know, for me to sit in traffic because, you know, New York City area, to sit in traffic for 90 minutes to get home and I want to see my kids before they go to bed. Um, you know, I have to be out of here at the same minute every day. I mean, I, I was just wildly efficient with my time in the office when everybody else was, you know, you know, so even though that, that nine to five, that nine to five mindset from a millennial standpoint may be outdated, there were still the corporations that we work for yep. that were hard and fast all over it, right? And yes. the commuting and everything, everything was set to it, that just, speedometer, right? Yeah, I mean, and the sooner, the sooner, and and the more, the more, uh, the more people embraced and let go of uh, the more people embrace the idea that work can get done anywhere. And at whatever time uh, is is appropriate, and and whatever time that your worker can feel the most successful or, or can be the most productive, like we should embrace that. We should embrace that generally because there's a level of trust that's conferred with that, right? I mean, we're saying that we trust you to get it done, uh, you know, in the time in which you can get it done. I mean, of course, there's exceptions to that. I mean, I take, you know, I I have a lot of conference calls uh, as as part of my day job. I mean, and I, I accept that, you know, those get scheduled at times that are most convenient for everybody. But when it comes to my actual, you know, some actual work that I have to do, I mean, I, I do it when I can. Sometimes I have to stop working at three o'clock in the afternoon. I log back in at eight o'clock at night. If I have to, I'll do what I have to do. And I don't think um, no one really ever gives me a hard time. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate to work for a company that really supports people getting their job done whenever they need to get it done. Um, and as long as the work's getting done and the product, uh, the work product is good, no one's going to give me a hard time. And, but that's why women can succeed at, at my company and companies like mine. Well, and I think employers by and large have been pleasantly surprised by work from home. I think they've seen productivity right. numbers they didn't expect. I think they've seen loyalty that they might have not trusted to begin with. So I don't, I don't think there's any doubt that work from home is working for the employer, but how does work from home work for the home? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I actually, I wrote about this in our tiny rebellions, uh, I guess a couple months ago where, um, I wrote about it in the context of doing laundry <laughs> because I work in my office is in my basement. Um, it was never intended to be an office. It's kind of like a nook off my children's playroom. Um, and we also have a little laundry room down here. So I would hear the laundry machine going all day while I'm working. And I'm like, I'm just, I'm a neat freak. I can't, I can't help it. It's just who I am. Like I, my well being like rests on being clean. It's just like, it's a personality trait. Um, so I would hear it going and I, and I just felt like I was constantly doing laundry. Like I was doing laundry on conference calls. I was multi, you know, I was folding, flipping, constantly every day and i'm like i'm like physically laboring while i'm mentally laboring like all day like what why am i doing this to myself and so at a certain point i i set a rule um and i decided and i know this this sounds like a little antiquated in the context of laundry and i don't mean to like set my gender back and oh, no, using no. Laundry. boundaries boundaries are important <laughs> especially when it comes to laundry yeah i mean i don't mean to like but you know what i mean i don't mean to like set my gender back by using the example of laundry but it's actually true um i only do laundry one day a week now i don't care if that means that it's piling over until that day i do it one day 
and I've pushed through. Like I, because I need to know mentally that those other days I am able to push that to the bottom of my list and have it not be something that even runs through my mind. Not only because of my work, but because I want to prioritize things that actually matter to me. I want to have time to go for my runs. I want to have time to write. I want to have time to do and anything that I want to do when I'm not working and not immediately jump back into, okay, just because I now work from home doesn't mean that I am like a, a constant captive audience to the stress that comes with being in my house all the time. Um, you know, I had to find a way to set those boundaries and, you know, it, it does and come. You, you probably you. had to find a way not to look at the laundry too, right? Literally. Yeah. Literally not to look at it, but also just, did they, to have, say, did like, they have to lock you out of the room and not give you the no, key until like, that one day. No, I'm just like a scheduling person. So if I tell myself that I'm going to do something one day a week, I'm like a scheduling and a list woman. So if I, if it is like not on my list, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to put it out of my mind. And that's really what I did. I said, okay, we're going to put this on Sundays. Or we're going to put this on Mondays. And I just know that just only one day a week, am I going to allow myself, um, to, to be mentally or physically saddled by that one obligation. Because if not, if we don't try and set some sort of boundaries, yeah, this work from home thing is, is really great. And there's like a lot that's come out of it, but there, you know, you can end up being really hard on yourself because when you have, in some way you have all the time and no time, right. Mm -hmm. To do everything now it's all, it's all the time and it's no time. I mean, there are times when I'm saying to myself, I have something for work that I got 60 or 70% done. And when I used to commute to my office, I would leave. And if I didn't get it done, I would say, I'll finish it tomorrow when I come back to my office. Now, if I'm 60% done and my kids come home from school, I say, sometimes I say, well, I'll just finish after they go to bed and I'll log back in. That's not always healthy either, right? I mean, it shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't do that to my, certainly if something is, well, there's a, you know, there's an argument to be made that if you're never truly off, it does make it hard to ever be truly on as well. That's, I, I mean, think truly, that truly present. And that's, that's one of the things that I see in the multitasking world, uh, our, you know, our employees, our friends, everybody that we work, it seems like the better they are at multitasking, the harder it is for them to be truly present. Right. I, I, I think that there's, there's definitely truth to that. Um, which is why I say like, it, it does require like a lot of mental fortitude to set those boundaries for yourself and to say like, yeah, just because I can do something whenever I want, doesn't mean that I should. Um, I, I, you know, I, and I think that as, as women and as like working professional mothers, um, we really, really can struggle with that. Um, because, there's never not something to do on our list. There is always something on the list. And it, and it, it, it requires, you know, like constant self-assessment to say to yourself, how am I doing in all of this? Like where, you know, am I okay? <laughs> am I okay? Nothing on this list belongs to me. There's a list with 30 things that belong to my kid, my husband, my house. Where are the things that belong to me? And that's kind of... um. That's where our tiny rebellions came from, actually. Um, yeah, 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 we're we're going to get to that, but let's let's take a step back. So you're an only child, and you you referred to it as with all the performance expectations and achievement monitoring that comes with it. 
I think yep. Some, something like that. I think that's accurate. Uh, give me an idea what that was like. What is that? Uh, when you look back on your memories of your childhood, what, uh, you know, that was a, that was a pretty, uh, pretty interesting picture you painted. I'm an only child and I'm an only grandchild on both sides of my family, which is very interesting. Um, you know, I think that people worry about me. People worried about me a lot because when you're kind of like the only hope, the only dream, the only legacy. I mean, think about it like that. You know, I mean, it's, it, there's a, so you lot, spent of a lot of, a lot of time in your early childhood with people just staring at you. Yeah. Well, and, and people being afraid, like, don't let her ride the bike. Don't let her, you know, she might fall. Is she eating enough? <laughs> like, is she, I was definitely like, like plumped up like a goose. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, well, is it, what, what's going on with her? Is she okay? I mean, you know, it, it was, um, there was a bit of that, you know, a bit of that neuroses kind of in my childhood. Um, but you know, and I mean, did you feed off that? I mean, was that, was that a positive for I, you growing up? Well, you know, I think that I've always been very competitive um, with myself and very critical, very self-critical more. So I don't think no one in my family was really very critical of me. Um, I think that a lot of the expectations are expectations that I, that I set for, um, for myself. But again, like, with no real benchmarks. I mean, there was really nobody else to compare myself to. I mean, you know, it was really, it was just me. Um, so, you know, which for better or for worse, when I say that, like I received all the attention, I mean, that was good and that was bad. I mean, I think that my parents were very, um, you know, they were supportive, but they were also concerned that I would fail. <laughs> you know, they wanted me to take the safe route, which was very typical of, you know, when you look at the generations and, and how people raise their children based on how they were taught um, and the things that they grew up and lived through. When you look at boomers saying like, well, we want you to take a safe, you know, take the safest route, do things that are safe and responsible. And, you know, that that's kind of how I found myself in this position um, of going to law school. I mean, I've always loved to write. Uh, being a writer was my dream in life. I was a journalism major in undergrad. Um, but it was very, you know, um, like it was risky. It was financially risky too. Um, I felt like. On the safe I, versus risky uh, yeah, pendulum, felt, especially with your parents concerned. I mean, law school had to, had to seem a lot better for them than writing. It, it seemed better for them than me saying, I want to move to New York City and become a writer and I want to be a journalist. And I think the pay was like $18,000 a year or something at like a, at a magazine, an entry level job. And then I'm like, this is what I would make. And this is what I would need to live. And they were like, yeah, no. <laughs> um, so then when I, you know, well, it's cool that you found a way to do both. Well, it, it is, but it, it is, but that was the journey, right? I mean, that was the thing. So I, I went to law school under this um, guise that this was the safe and responsible thing to do. And I think my parents supported that and felt that too. They said, well, you know, that was always the line. You can always use a law degree. That was kind of like a line. Well, you know, you don't need to necessarily practice. You can always use your law degree. Um, and I and I ended up attending a very expensive law school in New York City um, without really knowing what it meant to be a lawyer. Um, I didn't know any lawyers. I was the first, or I mean, I was the first lawyer in my immediate family. We have some cousins, but no one that really gave me a um, realistic idea of 
what it looked like on the day to day. Um, and so I took out a lot of money of student debt um, for a job that and a profession that I didn't really understand. And um, that became the basis of the millennial, the, the millennial problem, which we explored in our book, which ultimately we attempted to solve and ultimately inspired my husband's entire firm and his whole uh, and his whole mission statement of, of forming bona fide wealth, his firm, which was um, millennials that were in my position um, who were saddled in six figures of student loan debt and graduated during the Great Recession, forced to have this major career reckoning before we even got started to say to ourselves, what are we even doing? What am I doing here? I thought I was making the responsible decision. And certainly yeah. people were, and then suddenly people were coming to me being like, well, you should have known. How should I have known? Exactly. Um, yeah. What, what so, was the, where, where was the preparatory course I missed here? What, yeah, I what mean, did I, I not do? I mean, and I had a lot of those conversations. I sat down with our financial aid officers, you know, and, oh, take out all the money. Here are the charts of how much money people will make as a young, as, a, as an entry-level lawyer in Manhattan. Um, and maybe that was the case before the recession slashed those jobs. I mean, maybe, maybe that was the case um, back then. Well, and there's also the point where as you're growing up, you're, you're almost raised to stand out. You're, everything that you do gets this just extra attention, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. And then exactly. you go to law school, and the first thing they tell you is, well, you really need to learn how to fit in. That's so true. You That's really a really great to, way to look at it. You really need to learn how to leave your individualism at the door that you've spent your entire life fostering and do things the way we do them. And that's got to like, be especially hard for women because all of those mores and everything were built by men to begin with. That's so true. You must really be in my mind. You know, it's so funny because when I was, when I was in law school, I mean, I actually, I, I, I wrote, used to write some poems, which is like, random nobody knows that um i used to write some poems about being in law school that may or that may would not probably get you suspended actually but i yeah. was but they, they may thank god nobody found them. Of, a, of a future book book project i'm working on but i wrote one that was all about reducing i was all it was about becoming a number because our exams you don't put your names on exams in law school they're blind exams you put your number and um i basically wrote all about that about how you are reduced to this number it you know it doesn't matter how hard you how hard you work the person that you are you are reduced to this number for this purpose this number will determine your success or not um and that's how i generally felt as as a you know as as not only a law student but as a young lawyer in the city i mean it it just felt like there were just so many of us it was so oversaturated nobody cared about my opinion it's not your job to give opinions um it's really not your job to stand out and that was really antithetical to who i am as a person um, trying to fit into the construct of, of a big, of a big firm, um, or even a big, or, you know, even, even from a corporate standpoint, anywhere that really wouldn't value my opinion, um, just doesn't really necessarily align with who I am as a person. I think some people thrive in that construct of being told exactly what to do. And, um, they can, some people can pick things up and put them down their whole career, Right. I mean, right. and, and doesn't mean that they're a bad worker. They're just, a, they're a great worker, but that's just not who, who I am. And, and maybe that does stem back to being an only child and to, uh, and to that individualism. Um, who knows? Well, I mean, it, it could, but you know, it's, I, I think there's also the, 
the idea that most of our industries and most of our larger institutions are still run you know, by people that are living maybe in a different generational mindset than we are. That's true. And it, and it's just <laughs> That's really, very true. It is just really hard to, uh, you know, to make that transition. Uh, it's hard to make that transition when you don't let younger generations into leadership fast enough. Um, I have worked, I have not only worked for places, but I've also just been a part of so many conversations um, with folks in your industry and in my industry and the overlapping industries, um, you know, that we're all adjacent to via Twitter and other things where, you know, it, it, it's one thing to say that that the younger voice matters. It's another thing to let us into the room and to let us into like making decisions and actually allowing these opinions to really like guide the practices of a firm. Um, it's, it's so important um, because we are your workforce now. We are the workforce. We're the we're the predominant uh, demographic in the workforce. Um, well, and I, and in I just many ways, even a even a good employee employer treats their younger employees almost like your almost like your parents were treating you as an only child. Yep. Uh, yep. And I let's and make, let's well, make and the safe choice, and we're going to help you make it. Right. Exactly. And 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 let's not take risks. Let's not. You know. I mean, uh, like opinions would be solicited from time to time, but they were thinly veiled. I mean, I can't tell you the number of meetings over the years. <laughs> I mean, I, I've gone to meetings, I mean, and, and not just in my professional life, but in my, you know, even in my life as a lay leader and volunteer in my community. Um, I, I've gone to meetings where I feel like decisions were made before the meeting, you know, where they show up to kind of advise everybody who was supposed to be part of the decision-making process of what the final decision's actually going to be. And it, and I don't know if people think, you know, we don't notice that, you know, that the decision was made before the meeting or not, but, um, that's happened to me a lot. I mean, and it's, it's very frustrating, not only because our, our, not only because your opinion isn't being heard, but because my time's being wasted. Right. If you want to I mean, say, it... I, I think that's what kills me the most. Right? Yeah, just like, be honest with me. Just just tell me there's four or five people that are going to make this decision and we need a room full to justify it, but I don't yeah. need to be part of that room. Or, or or just say that, you know, this is normally something we'd put before this group, but a decision had to be made quickly and we made it and own that. Don't try and pay lip service to people who really want to be decision makers in the room. I'd rather know that I couldn't be a decision maker on one particular issue than to be forced through an additional meeting um, that wastes time and also kind of like disrespects my intelligence of, of, of seeing that that's happening to me. Um, it's, it's, now, on the other side of respecting your intelligence, I got to congratulate you. You made the FinTwit top 50 for 2021. <laughs> Which is now beyond that, funny to me. I love it. I'm tickled. I'm tickled. You know, which that. A, makes me jealous beyond belief. It really does. <laughs> but B, it I also makes me curious. It makes me curious. It, it's almost like you and Doug on social media speak in this sarcastic code that <laughs> is, is I really love it because I'm just into that. It's uh, how we are in real life. It's not a shtick. This is literally a day in our life. Like we, we speak the way we talk, the way we live. It's, it's true. It's the real deal. So what are the hidden messages in those? What are the hidden serious messages in those transferences of sarcasm? I think that, um, well, one, one of the funny things, I mean, I think one of the things that always comes through 
Doug, Doug has been big on this on he's been big on crypto this year, right? I mean, he's got a lot to say on that. And a lot of sarcasm around that. Um, well, I think, didn't I, you say Bitcoin was your favorite investment? Bitcoin is. It okay. Is. So, Doug, all right. So we're both, we're both okay. on crypto here. This is great. So okay. Doug, so Doug and I, Doug and I, I guess, oh my God, I really should, I really should have my timeline down, but you know, I'm not usually the one on the other side of the mic. This is usually him, not me. I guess back in 2012, we purchased a Bitcoin miner along with a friend. Um, this isn't just a random friend. This is probably our smartest friend who happens to live in Austin, by the way. Um, yeah, and you, you made reference to that in one of your uh, Tiny Rebellion pieces, I think, right? Yeah, he's a very, he's just a very brilliant guy. Um, I think he's a, a neuroscientist um, and very interested in, in all sorts of emerging technologies. And when one day he called us and he said, I need a couple grand. <laughs> Do you want to go into a partnership with, uh, you know, with me and we'll buy this miner and we'll split whatever we can get out of it. And um, Doug kind of said, well, I'll ask my wife. We had just gotten married, I think like a month. He had, uh, he had said, well, let me ask my wife, um, thinking that that would mean that'll definitely be a no. Like he thought that was his out. Oh, he saying, thought like, you were the out. Oh yeah. He was like, we just got married. We have zero money. I mean, we like literally were in en our entry level jobs in the city after grad school. We were like holding on by a thread to our rent. And he's like, let me ask my wife. And I was like, Seth wants to do it. We're doing it. And he couldn't believe that I said that. But at the time, I think I thought to myself, um, you know, I was at, I was in the first few years of a job and, and of a career that I didn't really know if I wanted. I was saddled in debt. I was terrified that the rest of my career was going to look exactly the way that it did back then. Doug was just getting started in his career. He was still working for another advisor and had, you know, a handful of solid clients. Um, and I said, you know, we need to start taking some risks. It was almost like, it was almost like a boomerang effect of, of the way that I was raised right um exactly always stay always stay in the shallow end always um you know don't don't stick your neck out put your head down and do the work and it'll eventually work out and in that moment i just said we need we have to start taking some risks what is this all for if we can't take risks on something that looks exciting and that sounds like like what digital currency what i i, I said we have we have to do this um so we scrapped together I think a couple grand, I think it was like $3,000 and we invested um, and we mined uh, a couple Bitcoin. And so, and that was really the start of our crypto journey. I mean, it was years before the mainstream narrative blew up on it, but honestly, I'm just as excited about it today as I was back then. And for the same reasons, but even more so today, I look at the you were, opportunities. You were mining Bitcoin for $600 back then, and now it's a little, little bit different story. Yeah, now it's a little different. But, you know, I, but I'm just as excited about the, the entire decentralized finance space um, because I just think the possibilities are just, are just endless. Like we are still in, like, we're not even in phase one, as far as I'm concerned, of Web3. We're in, we're like before that. This is, this is the, this is the, the pre-show. Um, and, and just, there's so many opportunities, especially for women too. I mean, and, and any, and anyone who's willing to put in the time to really learn and see what this space is developing into. I mean, it really can be an inclusive place if you choose to put your time and energy into it and it's exciting. So, um, 
you know, I try and play off his, he, he kind of takes the reverse psychology, right? He's always like a bit salty on Twitter about crypto, but in reality, when you actually listen to him uh, speak about it and when he, when he joins Twitter spaces and things, he's actually like, he's very gung ho on it. Um, but I, I always just try and take the counterpoint to whatever. Well, your, your husband's kind of a master of reverse psychology. So well, right. That, that's his, yeah. that's, we, that's we understand his, that every negative comment is, is really just a, a positive recommendation. Well, so that's, well, you would think, you would think that most people understand, but there's always like a couple, he gets a lot of DMs like, how could you say this? Well, he's like, detect the sarcasm friends detect the sarcasm <laughs> do you know me yeah yeah but no. All right, but so let's I, talk about your most most recent project it is not all that recent anymore but tiny rebellions tell us about that and where'd you get the idea and how has it evolved over time yeah sure um our tiny rebellions was born from the pandemic um this was uh something i mean i i've always loved to write as you now know um and back i guess like about a year into all of this, um, I just said, I need to start putting out content of my own. You know, I've, I've been on this, uh, financial, you know, financial advice adjacent track assisting Doug and jumping in with guest posts from time to time, but I need to have my own voice now and, and, and really speak to an audience that, that I'm not seeing is, is being met in the space. Um, so Somewhere in, I, I guess it was, wow, it was a whole year ago this week, actually. Yeah, I was about to say we're almost the one one year anniversary. Well, we? We, well, well, we're at the one year anniversary of the event that inspired our Tiny Rebellions, which was um, I got my helix pierced. My helix, the helix is like, you know, the upper part of the ear. Um, and so my daughter got her ears pierced for her fifth birthday in the middle of the pandemic because we didn't really know what else to do for her. She couldn't have a party. It was kind of like middle of December. And we had somebody, uh, we had an appointment for her to get a pierce. And I said, you know what? I'm going to get my helix pierced. I've wanted it my entire life. I've wanted it since I was like 16. It's one of those like things where you just, you've always wanted it. But then like my mom was like, they always get infected. <laughs> like, why would you do something like that? What if an employer sees it? What if blah, blah, you know, it's like, what if, what if, what if it's so, you know, why do you need that? You don't need it. And I, and I kind of like, you just needed that. one positive nudge along the way and never got one. Yeah. Well, and I just, and I was just, I was always like, you know, like I said, I mean, I was a bit of like a nervous, nervous Nancy. I mean, I kind of like just, yeah, it's not safe. It's not responsible. I'm not going to do it. People have a hard time with it, you know, whatever. And after a year of sitting in my house, working, <laughs> taking care of the kids, trying to like find any like ounce of joy that I can, that was like just for me. I just said, forget it. I'm going to do it. What, what life is too short. Why would I, it's just a, it's just a hole in my ear. Like what, <laughs> why am I, why did I say no? Why did I deny myself this tiny pleasure for so many years of my life? I'm going to do it. Why not? So, um, I got it done. So the hole in your ear was the first tiny rebellion. It was the first tiny rebellion and it, it was infected for eight months. <laughs> <laughs> I spent like, like more than half of 2021, like not sleeping on the left side of my head, <laughs> oh but, my goodness. but I have zero regrets, zero regrets whatsoever. I love it now. Um, and, and I own it. I took a risk. I did something I wanted to do and I owned the decision. And that is the basis for our tiny rebellions, which is like 
we need to celebrate the tiny wins that we find in our lives. I mean, and it is for women, but it's really not just for women. It's for anyone to say, like, you are not your job. You are not only your kids. You are you. You need to find the things that make you happy and that and that cause you to find joy in your day to day. What else is really the point? I mean, you know, and, and, and in doing that, you find yourself becoming a better parent, a better colleague, a better spouse. When you choose to do some things that are just for yourself, you you know, it, it the dividends are great. Well, I mean, I think of it as kind of a thematic stream of consciousness with, you know, really good writing. And what what attracts me to it is is the writing. You write so well. It's just awesome. Oh, thank you. That's so um, nice. How how much of this is celebrating the tiny wins and how much of it is getting your inner writer out? I think that's I think there's I mean, technically, right? Like our tiny rebellions itself, the newsletter itself is a tiny rebellion for me, right? Because that's what I, I was do, that's what I was thinking. Because when I read it the it, it's unlike any other newsletter I've I've read because it's it's written in a way that it is my it, therapy. Yeah. I mean it is it it is definitely my therapy too. I mean, they're not all happy. It's not all like I bought a new candle that smells really nice and that's my tiny rebellion for the week. I mean, I tackle or it's really not hard a, you know, it's too. not a top five list to, you know, of, of no. things you can do to rebel or you know Although although I do I do love a good listicle. I kind of feel like I'm I'm due for one of those. But you know, generally speaking, I mean I try and really push through the difficult things that people don't want to talk about. Um, so you, you we, wrote about ambition in one of your posts and it, it struck yes. me how the word I always think of ambition as having a positive connotation. Uh, but in your post, really it had a negative connotation. You talked about uh how even the meaning had changed for you over time and circumstance. Can you, can you yeah, kind of walk sure. through that with the audience who might not have had the chance to read it? As, as a woman, the word amb- ambitious is kind of like there's two sides to that coin. Um, I think from a mainstream media standpoint, you see it as like women can do anything. And here, here I am with my glittery sweatshirt that says, you know, I'm an ambitious woman. I can do all these things that, you know, that the men do and I, and I'm juggling it all and I can do it all. It's kind of like that. Um, I forget what they, it's, it's, um, what's that word I'm looking for? Um, oh, I forget, but it's, it, it, it's almost not real, right? Because in the workplace, at least how I've experienced it, when people say I'm ambitious, they're not saying something nice about me. They've, they've been saying that I, was, you got to watch out for her. You can't trust her. I was not trustworthy that I didn't care about them, right? That I was only thinking about myself, that I was selfish, and that I put my, my ambition above all else. Um, and I, I mean, I do think that that was a, is a double standard um, for men and women. I think that um, only women are associated with that negative connotation that comes with the term ambition. Um, and that was my experience with the term um, and, and how it was used to describe me. Um, and, and, and I understood why the people who felt that way about me did, because that was the environment in which they, they came up uh, as uh, female lawyers and professionals in my industry. Um, there were not a lot of us. And the women that had made it to the top didn't have anything else 
all they had was their ambition. I mean, that was that was what they had. They gave everything. They gave to, everything to get to that point. They gave everything, and they were expected to give everything. So when someone, so when they finally and they become that, the they become the living, breathing definition of that word. Correct. And when they reach that, you know, ivory tower at the top of their um, at the top of their field, and they look down and they see women trying to rise, um, they feel like they're coming for them directly. So they project that negative connotation of the word ambition upon the women beneath them. And they say, watch out for them. Instead of saying, wow, we are so lucky to have this dynamic workforce filled with working women who care about their jobs and want to find a way to uh, be successful here and be successful elsewhere. I mean, I think that will change over time, but I've experienced um, you know, the negative side of that. Um, and, and, and I perpetuated it. And, and that's, that is part of what I wrote about in that, in that week's issue was, you know, I, I did put that on other women. I did, I did, you know, not make fun of, but I did, you know, push hard on other women who were like working women who working mothers who left the office early and who I felt like weren't committed and they weren't doing their part and that I was doing all their work. And I wanted everyone to know that I was staying later than them. And I, picked up the slack and I was more reliable than them. I mean, I was definitely part of the problem too, because that's how I, you know, came up. And, um, you know, unless you, unless well, something changes that, that on for some you. Level, that's just human. I, I just think that we require more humanity of our female employees sometimes than we do our male employees. I think that uh, that's right. I think that that's right. I mean, and for me that changed around the time that I had my first child, but it wasn't necessarily because, um, I gave birth. It's not one of those things that are like, and then I had a daughter and it all changed. And then now I'm, now I'm much softer towards my female. Co- that is like, not what happened. Uh, <laughs> what what, ha- what happened was the book. What happened was um, writing a book on my maternity leave and finally feeling accomplished for the first time in my actual life. Like I, I like objectively on paper. Yeah. I had accomplished a lot. I was a, a lawyer. I had achieved, um, I was, you know, I'd achieved, an objective measure of success. Um, but I never felt like it was enough. And that was, and that came out like, you know, negatively from time to time. And I just never felt satisfied. Um, well, that, that kind of leads into something else you talked about in one of your other posts. You talked about the fact that you, your happiness shouldn't be scrapbooked, I think is the way you put it. Um, I'm trying to think what context was that I mentioned. What, what and it can be practiced at, at any age. I think it, it had to do with, uh, you know, I think it had to do with there, there's no reason that someone who's 35 can't be as happy as they were at 25. Oh, yes. Travis, Travis Barker and Kourtney Kardashian. Yes. I was talking about the, celeb- about the celebrity couple um, uh, when they, right after they got engaged and why it was so exciting to, to women uh, of my generation and a lot of that came from this notion that, like, why do we only celebrate and obsess over young couples? Why don't we allow people to celebrate and, and, and to broadcast and, you know, prop up the love of, of a more seasoned couple that found love at a certain point in their life? So what? They, they already have kids and they're broadcasting their, you know, sexiness all over social media. I mean, I think it's wonderful. Um, and that it, you know, it shouldn't, you shouldn't have to limit broadcasting your happiness to a certain point in your life. Like I know women who 
say all the time, oh, that mom, she, she overshares on social media. She thinks she's, look at the, she's posting photos of her outfits and her shoes. What is, who does she think she is, an influencer? I'm like, who cares? If it makes her happy, you're looking. You know what I mean? Like, you're looking at and it I, too. Yeah, and I'm, I'm thinking, Lord, if I look like that, you'd have to buy me another phone. Well, I'm just, I'm just laughing and I'm like, I'm saying to myself, what, what, after I have kids, am I only allowed to share photos of my kids? Am I not allowed to share things that make me happy and purchases that make me happy and things that I do with just my husband without my kids that make me happy? Um, that's not it does seem I, like there's like a mom contract that, you know, you have to yeah. live up to that you didn't give a chance to sign before giving birth. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And I really, I really don't subscribe to that school of thought that like you should lose all of yourself um once you have children um or you should or that you should lose all of yourself to your job i mean back to that post about decentralized ambition i mean you have every right to broadcast whatever version of yourself that you want to at whatever age you want to do it um male or female um and i just uh i just don't subscribe to that idea at all that you should be limited based on some sort of like social contract that says at a certain age you're not allowed to uh to celebrate whatever in the world you want to. Well, when you use the word subscribe, I don't know how many subscribers you have to our tiny rebellions, but you should have never more enough. It is, never it enough. is fantastic. It should be required rating uh, every week. Oh, thank it's, you. It's so really much. great. Now you talk one, and we got just a couple minutes left, but I, I wanted to get this in before we uh, had to drop off. But you talked about the guilty, uh, the guilt of dreaming, I think is one of the things that millennials kind of suffer from. Is that still the case for you? Do you still feel that guilt of dreaming? I don't. I mean, I think that, um, I, I, I think, I think if anything, you know, being constant, like constantly thinking about what is possible is what opens the doors to so many new things. Right. I mean, so many new things in your own life, um, maybe a new career, maybe a new business. Um, maybe a new way to approach your day to day uh, with your family. Um, you know, I I don't think that you should feel guilt about that. I don't remember where I wrote that or where that came up and in what context, but I I don't agree with it, and I reserve the right to change my opinion on it, which I am doing now. It, it was probably Doug's idea that you just had to write better than he than he could have. But, <laughs> so if I have the no, chance I, to talk to him, maybe I'll hit the dream question with him later. I I, I think that. Um, I mean, dreaming about what's possible and, and, and taking those risks are, I mean, like, even, even if at one point in time I did think that, I feel like the pandemic and what we've all been through over the last two years has only been a testament to like, we have to do what, what, we have to do the things that we dream about at night. We have to do the things that we think about in our, in our sleep as, as, as our greatest hopes and wishes in, in this life. Like we have to give them a chance. Because life is too short. We actually might not have the time we think we do. Exactly. Exactly. So what's next for you? What are you, what are, where are you hoping to make an impact next? That's a great question. And you might hear more about that in the next couple of weeks. Ooh, so we got a, a pending Sorry. announcement. So I'll, no, I'll keep, the, I'll keep the lid on it, but I will say, you know, I'm, I'm going to, 
there is some cool stuff coming, but we can totally circle back on it. Yeah, um, I, I will be prepared to hype it up without any direct reference. So, oh, that's awesome! Thank you so much. And, then, <laughs> and, and I, and I actually, I mean, look, I, I just my goal for you know the coming year is just to see our tiny rebellions grow. I mean, my plan is just to keep with it, and I just want to keep keep sharing and telling stories that that relate, um, you know, and that really resonate with other women. And um, because it's, you know, it's just, it's just so important, you know, the more readers that write to me and say, um, and, and say, I feel like you were in my mind, I was thinking that, but no one's ever said it before. Um, mm -hmm. Anytime that happens, I, I know that I've won, like on, on a piece. And I just, I, it just makes me want to keep doing it. Anytime I'm too tired or I have something else going on. I'm like, nope, nope. We got to keep going. We have to keep going. So I'm kind of uh, just looking forward to uh, challenging myself and continuing to push through with that in the new year. Yeah, I was talking to somebody about how excited I was for our conversation, and they said, "Well, you're, you know, you're a wealth manager. What, what does this have to do with wealth management?" I said, "It has everything to do with it. It's it has everything to do with it. It really does. I mean, because you know, wealth management, right? Isn't it about reaching your goals?" If you don't know what your goals are because you're not being truthful and honest with yourself, what are you aiming for anyway? It's not about the numbers. It's about happiness. And you only reach your happiness when you've reached your goals. Yeah. And, and See, you I'm closer be, to yeah. your industry than, uh, <laughs> than people. I, I, did write a, I did write a finance book. Yeah, you did. You're, you're the only finance author on this, uh, on this meeting. So uh, <laughs> you've got that going for you. All right. So last question. If you could go back in time and tell your teenage self one thing, what would it be? Something that would just stick and become your your just Trust thesis me. for operation. Don't play it safe. Trust your gut. You're the one who's right, not them. Well, that's a good one to that's a good one to end it on, Joelle. Thank yeah. you very much for joining us. Thank and, you uh, so much. It was really great. Thanks. It's such a pleasure. And so that does it. We'll be sure to update everyone on the upcoming announcement that Joel hinted at during the podcast. It should be coming up very shortly and it should be very interesting. Joel, thanks so much for joining us and thank you so much for listening and engaging with us. What a great episode to end the year on. If you like what you hear, please rate us on your favorite podcast platform and follow and subscribe. We also bring you regular updates to our followers on Alexa via the Wealth Voice app. We'll probably have Emily Bender, who's the founder of Wealth Voice, on at some point in 2022 to talk about the power of voice. If you'd like to check these out, you can simply ask your smart speaker or Alexa-enabled device, and that actually includes the Alexa app on your phone, for the latest update from Silicon Hills Wealth Management. Again, thank you so much for listening. Happy New Year.